didn't play any part in it. If they did it to us and we didn't do anything to set it in motion in column four, we just put nothing. But in most cases, in my case, everyone, I didn't have a resentment that I had not done something to set that thing in motion, created a problem for them, then they retaliated against me. And then I resented and played it over and over, transferred all blame to them. The book also says, where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And we've added one more to that, inconsiderate, because we're going to use it in a couple pages anyhow. And that lists the character defects talked about in the big book. Character defects are selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. So we go into the fifth column now. And this little deal with Barbara where I was out there doing my thing, paying no attention to her and the kids and etc., was I selfish under those conditions? You better bet I was. Was I dishonest? You better bet I was. Was I self-seeking and frightened? Oh, yeah, I'm saying to myself, man, you're getting close to 40 years old. If you're going to get to say we're going to get some of that, you better get out there and do it now before you get too old. Fear. Fear drives us to do many things we would not normally do. Was I inconsiderate of my wife and children? You bet I was. If I really considered their needs and wants first, ahead of my own, I wouldn't have been out doing those things. I looked at the Internal Revenue Service. Cheating on my income tax, was I selfish? Sure I was. Was I dishonest? Sure I was. Was I self-seeking and frightened? Sure I was. Afraid I wasn't going to have enough money to do what I wanted to do, so I ended up trying to cheat them out of their money. And how about Joe with Rose? Joe selfish? Yeah. Was Joe dishonest? Yeah. Was Joe self-seeking and frightened? Yeah. Was he inconsiderate? Yeah, if he really considered old Rose, he wouldn't be gone two or three months at a time. <laughs> he wouldn't come home and find some boy sitting in his easy chair if he stayed home once in a while. So for the first time, for the first time, we look in that fifth column, and we see the type of personality that we have developed through our life of living, through, through our, our living life run on self-will throughout our entire lifetime. And I didn't like what I saw. I always thought that I was a pretty good guy. I just drank a little too much. But when I looked into that fifth column and I saw how selfish I had really become and how dishonest and how self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, I began to realize for the first time, you know, if I stay that way, then I'm going to keep right on doing the same old things I've always done. And if I keep right on doing the same old things I've always done, I'm going to continue to hurt people and institutions. And they're going to retaliate, and I'm going to resent, and I'm going to end up drunk over it. I begin to see in the fifth column where I'm going to have to start changing some of those things. If I want a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness in the future. 
Just think, if I could become a little less selfish, I'll never be perfect. But if I could become a little less selfish, if I could become a little less dishonest, if I could become a little less self-seeking frightened, if I could become a little less inconsiderate, then maybe I wouldn't be doing those things that's going to hurt people and institutions. And then they wouldn't have to retaliate, and then I wouldn't have to resent. At the very least, I'm going to have to do something about that fifth column. And really, that's the whole purpose of this inventory, is to get me to that fifth column. Column one, we've got to have it, and column two, and column three, and column four. But the whole purpose of those four columns is for me to see in that last column, column five, the character defects that I have developed through living a life run on self-will. And those are the things we'll have to work on. Now, we're in the process of taking step four. We'll put a little four up here at the top of that sheet. This is the inventory part, the uh, resentment part of it. In the fifth column, we now see the exact nature of the wrong that we're going to talk to another human being about in step five. The resentment is the wrong. That's what blocks me from God. But what's the exact nature of it? And the exact nature of something is what is at the core of it? What's the inherent characteristic of it? So we're going to talk about that in step five. A guy comes to me today with a step four to do a step five. I don't care how many times he's stolen. Whether he's stolen twice or two hundred. What I'm interested in is what's within him that causes him to steal. Does he do it because of plain dishonesty? Does he do it because he's self-seeking frightened? Does he do it because he's inconsiderate? That's what we've got to find out. I don't care how many times he's committed adultery, whether it's ten or a hundred. What I'm interested in is what's within him that causes him to do that. Those are the things we'll work on. That's what we talk about in step five. The whole purpose of this inventory is to get us into that fifth column. Also in the fifth column, we now see the character defects that we're going to become willing to turn loose of in step six. Knowing full well, if I don't turn loose of those things, if I stay that way, then I'm not going to get a bit better. Also in the fifth column, I now see the shortcomings. I'm going to ask God to take away in step seven. In my case, all the names in column one, in your case, some of them, in my case, all of them, are going to be taken off column one and added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. We get to 8 and 9, the book says we have the list, we made it, and we took step 4. Now, we didn't really realize we had hurt all those people until we worked our way all the way across the inventory sheet and found out we'd been using resentments in order to transfer blame to them. And we didn't realize we had hurt them until we finished up this particular part of the inventory. The most amazing thing I've ever seen. And it's just that simple. It doesn't take very long to do this either. 
You know, you can do this thing in a matter of two or three hours. And I see people doing this, trying to do this in a matter of two or three months. Well, we can do it in just two or three hours. Just follow the simple little instructions. Joe, you got anything else there? Okay. Now, we don't want to try to give you the impression that you can always be 100% free of resentments. You know, God never gave us anything bad. It's only what we do with it that determines whether we're bad or not. A resentment, if used correctly, can be used for a worthwhile purpose. For instance, if somebody does something to me that threatens my self-esteem, if it causes me to look at me and see some changes I need to make, and I go ahead and make those changes in my personality, then the resentment was used for a worthwhile thing. But if I just keep letting it fester and fester and fester and blaming them for doing so, then it's going to make me sicker and sicker and sicker. Give you a good example. Let's say we're living in the neighborhood and all the old houses are, torn, are in bad shape. They all need painting. They've all got broken window panes and torn window screens. My house is no worse than anybody else's. And I'm very complacent about that situation. I go home from work in the evening, I sit on my front porch, and I rock, and I rock, and I rock, and I enjoy life. One day I look up, and some idiot has moved in across the street. Yeah, he's out there painting his house, <laughs> fixing the window screens and window panes. Makes my house look bad. And I resent the hell out of him for doing that. I say, who in the hell is he moving in here screwing up the whole neighborhood? If I use that resentment right, it'll cause me to look at my house and become a little bit ashamed of it. Next thing you know, I paint my house and fix the window screens and the window panes. My next door neighbor resents me for doing so. Next thing you know, he's cleaned up his house. After a while, God's got the whole neighborhood cleaned up like it should have been in the first place. But we alcoholics won't use it that way. We'll sit there and we'll resent and we'll resent, and 30 days later at midnight, we'll go over and burn his damn house down. One, one more little thing on resentments, and then we're going to leave them alone. I hear some of you saying, and, and, and I hear good, I really do. I hear you somebody saying, well, Charlie, this is probably all true. For people that we ourselves have harmed. But how, how about those that hurt us and we didn't have anything to do with that? You know, how about the mental abuse and the physical abuse and the sexual abuse that we experienced as kids growing up? How about all those things that abusive things that happened to us in our marriages? Aren't we justified in having that kind of resentment? I guess we are if we want to get drunk over it. But you see, a justified resentment does the same thing an unjustified resentment does. It blocks you off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And it'll get you drunk just as fast as an unjustified resentment will get you drunk. Whoever or whatever we're resenting. They're controlling our thinking, justified or unjustified. 
Now, it really doesn't make any sense to let somebody hurt us 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago and then let them continue to hurt us every day for the rest of our life. Because every time we play that thing over, we experience that pain again over and over and over and over and over and over. And we've given those people the power to actually kill us. Not only did they hurt us, but through our resentments, we're giving them the power to actually kill us. And if we've got one of those people, one of those kind of resentments, we better get it down on this sheet of paper. Who are they? Column one. What did they do? Column two. Which part of self affected? Column three. What did I do if anything? Column four. Nothing. But then let's look into the fifth column. Let's look into the fifth column. Are we using that resentment to rationalize and justify things? The lady of the book did it. She used this resentment against her mother to justify her lack of education. Bull. Great excuse in the world is I could have gotten an education if mother hadn't have done that to me back there when I was a little kid. Bull. If she wanted an education, she could get it. She used it to justify her marital failure. Bull. Mama didn't have anything to do with that. She even used it to justify her alcoholism. Bull. I'll tell you why she became alcoholic. She kept on drinking whiskey. <laughs> the greatest excuse in the world is if they hadn't have done that to me, then I wouldn't have to do these things I'm doing. Or if they hadn't have done that to me, then I would be able to do these things out here. We call that rationalization or justification. I think the new name for it is victimization. We don't have any room in AA for victimization. You know, we're trying to get some peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And as long as those old resentments are rolling around in our head, we're never going to have peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And the only way we can get rid of those things, the only way we can live free is to get rid of those things. Now, if we look at them and see the truth and see the stupidity of letting them control our life and hurt us every day, many times they will automatically disappear. If they don't automatically disappear, then we've always got the recourse of praying for them. The hardest thing in the world to do is to pray for another human being who has hurt you badly. But that doesn't mean we approve of what they did. That doesn't mean we're going to walk hand in hand with them the rest of our life. What it means is we're tired of letting sick people make us sick. And they are sick people. They're not necessarily bad people. They would have done it to anybody in that situation. And if we can even begin to realize that, we can begin to get rid of those kind of resentments also until we can become resentment-free, at least to the level that God intended for us to do. Joe? We're going to talk about a bit about fears here in a little bit and uh, want to restate something I think we said yesterday. We're not going to psychoanalyze ourselves when we look at our fears. A lot of people like to do that. We're not going to say that the reason we have these fears is because Mommy set us on a potty chair backwards or something. We're not going to do that. Did she really do that to you? Yes. 
what we're going to do is what the book suggests. We're going to find the facts, and we're going to face the facts, and then we're going to engage in the process to accept the facts. And that's what this inventory is about. You know, we're looking for our own moral fiber. The ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which Dr. Jung said was the controlling issues of our life. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, and where they came from, how fearful they were. And I didn't know that I had any. Let's go to page 18 for just a moment. That one little paragraph up there tells my whole story, really. I can find my whole story, or a lot of my story, in almost any paragraph, but that particular one tells my whole story. It says, an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe it an illness, involves those that bounce away no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all is sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents, and anyone can increase the list. In other words, alcoholism is a family illness. And if you live with one of us very long, you're going to be affected by it. Generally, not very good. As I look back at my life, I see that my dad was an alcoholic. I didn't know that in those days. I thought it was no good rotten SOB. But he was an alcoholic. And he had an obsession to drink. And my mother had an obsession to see that he didn't drink. And it seemed like every time my dad took a drink, my mother had a personality change. (laughs) And they fought and they fussed a lot about that. We left the farm in the middle 30s. Went out to California. Didn't fit in real well out there at that time. Came back to Tulsa, Oklahoma on the west side of the river. Charlie's family lived about three or four miles down the the river from us. And the whole side of town was basically fearful. Because when we lived on the farm, we were pretty safe there. But when we got away from the farm, we broke up the family unit. And everybody went off in every direction at one time. And we ended up over in West Tulsa. My dad got a job as an ice man, back-breaking work six days a week. No minimum wage in those days, so it was less than the minimum wage. Hauling ice to people's houses. Saturday evening late, he would go get off work, get his little check, and go down and buy him a little pint of whiskey for $2. Rock got whiskey in the bootleg. And didn't have the real stuff in Oklahoma at that time. And he'd come home to have a drink. And see, I think he deserved a drink after six days of back-breaking work. But my mother saw those $2 taking away food from her five kids. And she was very fearful, too. My whole family was fearful. And they began to fuss and fight about that a lot. And I grew up in this. And from time to time, my dad would pull out a knife and threaten my mother with it. And from time to time, he would tell us kids, boys, I'm taking your mom out this weekend. I'm going to kill her. And I'm, you know, I'm five, six years old. And I believe that. See? And I used to sit at home and eat on my fingernails all the way down to the quick, worried about those things. And I got got a, a fearful attitude as a result of that. Eventually, my mother had to have him arrested and put in Eastern State Hospital in Benita. That's our local nut house. And there was no alcoholic treatment ward in that nut house at that time. It was 1948. And uh, what they did have was a criminally insane ward. And that's where they put my dad. And he was to stay there until they got well. Think about that. Could be there a while, right? 
Well, my dad was in the criminally insane ward for three years and seven months and 13 days. And he was an alcoholic. And I used to hitchhike up to my brother and I up the old 66 highway and walk those three miles from 66 back to the hospital, take him a couple of dollars and a carton of cigarettes from time to time. Go up on, on the third building three up on the fifth floor in the back and saw things back there that nobody is supposed to see. Nobody is supposed to see those things. And on the way home, I began to get a bunch of ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which become the guiding force of my life. And I taught myself these things. No one taught I was not taught these by other people. One of the thoughts that came to me was like this. If God is going to do this to me and to us, then to hell with him. If I ever get big enough they can't catch me, I'm not going to church anymore. And this is what he's going to be like. And that was an attitude that I got at about seven years old. And didn't go anymore either. So when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And you could probably guess what it was. Another thought came to me one day was this. Hey, if it hurts like this to love people, I'm not going to love anybody anymore. It hurts too bad. So I began to push people out of my life. And I was good at that. Uh, still good at it. Sitting at the table this morning, someone was talking to me, and I didn't even hear them. I'm right next to me. I have the ability to tune you out. <laughs> you see? And uh, He has selective hearing. That's what he is. <laughs> I can walk right past you and not even see you. But that's the way it was. I put people out of my life. And another, another thought came to me one day was anything good is going to happen in my life. It's going to happen because I, all alone, without any help from anybody, made it that way. And you see, I thought those were very brave attitudes on my part. I didn't need God, nothing, or nobody. Turns out they're the most fearful attitudes anyone could possibly have. And certainly I didn't know that. I, I use those as a coping skills for a long time. And they're not very good at coping skills, by the way. They put you in jail for that. They did for me. Put you in prison for that, and they did that for me. They divorced you for those kind of attitudes, and they did that for me. How many times? Too many times. <laughs> but but I keep trying to get him to say he's been married to two women seven times. Seven times. Yeah. <laughs> Phyllis only agrees with one, but I divorced her twice, and it wasn't even my turn. But uh, not very good coping skills, what I'm telling you. They don't, they don't divorce you for being a good husband and a good father and a good provider. They divorce you for being like I was. So anyhow, over, over in our part, of the, uh, our part of town, Charlie lived about three or four miles down the road. And uh, there were two kinds of kids in school. One, one type of kid was those that ran home from school. And the other type was those that ran people home from school. And I knew that if they ever got you to running, they wouldn't let you quit. So I became one of those that ran people home from school out of a defense, you see. And I became that way for many, many years of my life. If I perceived a threat from you, it was not good for you. I would retaliate even though I hadn't had a threat, you see. So that was the way I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, like I said, I didn't know that any of these things were fearful thoughts on my part. I thought they were very brave on my part until I did an inventory process. Turns out the most fearful attitudes, ideas, and emotions that anyone could possibly have. So now let's go to page 67. Joe said in his neighborhood, he became one of those that ran other kids home from school. Well, I never was big enough to do that. Hmm. 
So I just stood on the corner and talked them out of it as they went by. <laughs> Charlie was always talking to the girls. Bottom page 67. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties of Mr. Brown, Miss Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains and circumstances which brought us misfortune. We felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think that fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. And here's the instructions. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. And here it was for me. Wasn't it because that self-reliance had failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Okay, in that paragraph that Joe just read, <clears throat> we see basically the same set of instructions to look at fears as we had for resentments except worded a little bit differently, which is Bill's way of doing things. He's not about to repeat himself exactly the same way twice in a row. So we made up another little inventory sheet called a review of fears. And it looks almost like the resentment sheet. It's got the five columns in it. Column one, who or what do I fear? Column two, because. Column three, affects my. Column four, what did I do? And column five, where had I been? So we go back to column one, and just like with resentments, we make a list of our fears. Going always from top to bottom. Now, we men tend to say, well, we don't have much fear. We're tough. We're macho. But we're not talking about physical fear as much as we are all these fears that run through our mind that really control us and rule us and dominate us, that determines what we do and what we don't do, and etc. And I know just like resentments, I didn't think I had much fear. In fact, I told, told my sponsor I don't really have any fear. He said, oh, surely you're afraid of something. And I said, well, not that I know of. He said, are you afraid of snakes? I said, well, hell yes, everybody's afraid of snakes. <laughs> he said, write that down. <laughs> and I wrote snakes down, and that started the, started the thing going. And I began to fill out, once again, sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet of fears. We all got fears. Fears connected with our marriages. Fears connected with our children. Fears connected with our jobs. Fears connected with the aging process. Fears connected with this and that and so on and so forth. All we have to do is just make a list of them. Just like we did with the resentments. When I made up that list of fears, I, I never realized I had that much fear. You can only see one at a time in your head. And I don't think any of us will really realize how much fear controls and dominates our thinking. 
till we get them all down on paper and see them in their entirety for the first time. Column two. What's the cause of the fear? Now, like Joe said, we're not going to attempt to psychoanalyze ourselves. And we're not going to say that I'm afraid of the dark because Mother set me sideways on the potty when I was two years old. <laughs> fear is like resentments. Fear can be used for a worthwhile purpose. You know, it can bring caution and keep us out of trouble. Yeah, I'm a little bit afraid of the dark. Why? I don't have headlights and I can't see at night. And that keeps me from getting hurt. I'm a little bit afraid of heights. Why? I don't have wings and I can't fly. And that keeps me from getting hurt. But if those kind of fears keep me from going outside after dark, keep me from riding in an elevator or an airplane, then I better get them on this paper and look at them because they're controlling my life for me. Most of our fears, just like the book says, did we ourselves not set the ball rolling? Now, most of our fears are going to be centered around just two or three things. I'm scared to death I'm going to lose something I've already got. Scared to death I'm not going to get something I want. Or I've done something I shouldn't have done, and I'm scared to death what they're going to do whenever they find out about it. And nearly all my fears stem from those kind of things. Let's give you a couple of fast examples. Column one, let's put down my boss for the first fear. Column two, let's put down the police for the second fear. Now, we can list many of them, but those are just a couple common ones. Column two, what's the cause of that fear with my boss? Well, I'm afraid he's going to fire me. Very simple. What's the cause of my fear with the police? Well, I'm afraid you're going to put me in jail. Very simple reasons for that. Column three. What part of self is affected? If my boss fires me, is that going to be a threat to my security? Going to be a threat to my self-esteem? Sure. If the police put me in jail, is that going to be a threat to my security? Going to be a threat to my self-esteem? Going to be a threat to my sex life? Once again, the kind I'd like to have, yeah. Some in there I don't want. But... Column four. What did I do to set this thing in motion? As far as my boss is concerned, I'm always late for work. He's threatened me a half a dozen different times, but I'm always coming in late for work, and he's getting pretty tired of that. How about this deal with the police? Well, I'm always breaking the law. I'm exceeding the speed limit every time I get out there. I'm always stealing from people. I'm scared to death they're going to catch me now and put me in jail. Column five. Where had I been? This deal with my boss. Am I selfish? Sure, I'm selfish. Am I inconsiderate? You bet you I'm inconsiderate. You know, if I really, if I really needed wanting to do the things I'm supposed to do, I'd be at work on time, wouldn't be creating this kind of problem for my boss. He wouldn't have to be threatened to fire me. Complete inconsideration of other people. This deal with the police. Am I selfish? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm driving 85 mile an hour, taking a 
chance on killing a half a dozen different people. Why don't I just drive by the speed limit, see? Am I inconsiderate? You betcha. Am I dishonest? Sure I am. Same old character defects behind these fears. That's behind the resentments. And again, what we're trying to do is work our way into that fifth column. You see, if I wasn't so selfish, I wouldn't have to be afraid of losing what I've got or not getting what I want. If I wasn't so dishonest, I wouldn't be doing those things that create problems for others. I'm scared to death what they're going to do when they catch me. If I wasn't such a self-seeking, frightened individual in the first place, I wouldn't have to experience so much fear. If I wasn't so inconsiderate of other human beings, I wouldn't be doing the things that create problems for them. With the same old character defects out there in that fifth column, that's behind the fears as we had behind resentments. But if I could become a little less selfish, a little less dishonest, a little less self-seeking frightened, a little less inconsiderate of others, then maybe I wouldn't have to experience so much fear. At the very least, I'm going to have to do something about those things in the fifth column. Because if I stay that way, then fear is going to continue to eat me up. And fear blocks me off from God, just like a resentment does. And the fears control and rule and dominate my thinking for me. Now, once again, we're doing step four. This is the fears part of it. Fifth column, we see the exact nature of the wrong. We're going to talk to another human being about The fear is what blocks me from God. That's the wrong. But what's with it be that creates that fear in the first place? The fifth column, I see the character defects I'm going to be willing to turn loose of in six. In the fifth column, I see the shortcomings I'm going to ask God to take away in seven. Quite naturally, some of the names in column one are going to be people and institutions I've harmed. And I'm scared to death what they're going to do when they catch me. So their names are going to come off of column one and be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. So we've given ourselves everything we need down for resentments and for fears as far as steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are concerned. Now, you think resentments look stupid. Wait till you get your fears down on paper. Oh, they look good in your head. But they look double, double dumb when you get them down on paper and really see the truth behind them. And they look so double, double dumb that a lot of those fears are going to begin to disappear automatically simply because we see how dumb they really are. They'll no longer have any meaning for us. But then, just like with resentments, there'll be one, two, three, or four that have been embedded in our minds so long that they don't disappear automatically. And we're going to have to have God's help on that also. We now come to the 
second prayer in the big book on step four. We had one for resentments. Now we've got one for fear. Page 68. He said, perhaps there's a better way. We think so, for we're now on a different basis. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust our infinite God rather than our finite selves. See, but now I've done step three, so I have a God in my life. We are in the world to play the role He assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think He would have us and humbly rely on Him, does He enable us to match calamity with serenity. Now, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think that spirituality is a way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's a way of strength. The verdict of the ages is faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. And here's the prayer. We ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be. And at once, we commence to outgrow fear. We hear always about the promises on page 83 and 84. We never hear about the promises spread throughout the entire book. Joe just read one of the greatest promises to be found anywhere in the big book. We ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be instead. And at once, we commence to outgrow that fear. Just like with the resentments, we can take these deeply embedded fears one at a time, ask God to remove them on a daily basis, ask Him to direct our attention to what He would have us be instead, and at once we commence to outgrow that fear. Now just think, if 95% of these fears disappear automatically because they look so stupid and dumb, if the other 5% that can be removed through prayer, then that means that this little file cabinet I had up here in my head that was full of fears has now been emptied out. The damaged and unsaleable goods called fear have now been removed. And once again, God is not going to allow another hole in my head. Got enough of those already. If the fears are removed, they have to be replaced. And the only thing that can replace them will be the opposite of them. And where my mind used to be filled with fear, now my mind is filled with faith and courage. And I find that I can do many, many things that I was always afraid to do. And just as importantly, I can quit doing many things that I was afraid to quit. Automatically, that comes to the surface. It's always been a part of my makeup, faith and courage has. But in my chase for money, power, prestige, sex, those things had to be repressed to let me operate on the level I wanted to operate on. And now that they're gone, or now that fear is gone, they automatically come to the surface. Another very positive happening. Two-thirds of my little store now has been straightened up. Isn't that something? Now, just like with a resentment, if you've got a fear that you don't want to get rid of, for God's sake, get it on this sheet. Knowing full well it might get you drunk. If you don't want to get rid of it, let's get it on this sheet and see the truth behind it. That's what a moral inventory is, seeing the truth behind these things. Let me give you an example of how fear can control us and rule us. Be honest with me now. How many of you in this room this morning would like to go back to school and finish your education? Could I see your hands? 
Oh, man, they're popping up all over the room. Okay. Let me ask you another question. Please be honest. How many of you really intend to do that? Can I see your hands? <laughs> Less than 20% of them went up this time. Why? Nothing in the world but fear. Fear that we can't measure up. Fear of failure. Fear of hard work. Keeps us from actually doing things that we really would like to do. All my life I've loved to work with my hands. I always wanted to build a set of kitchen cabinets. But I never would do it because I knew there would be a lot of mistakes in them. They wouldn't look good. People would laugh and I would be embarrassed. After I worked this program several years, I built a set of kitchen cabinets with my hands. Now, they don't look very good, and there's a lot of mistakes in them, and people laugh, but I don't give a damn anymore. <laughs> I had this young guy named Todd that I sponsored years ago, and he was unemployed and unemployable, 29 years old. and He had had 13 jobs that last year of his sobriety, or last year of his drinking. Well, he'd been sober a couple of years, now he's 29 years old, and I said, Todd, what are you going to do with your life? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, how about uh, what you always want to do? He said, I've always wanted to be an engineer. I said, well, why don't you go back to school and be an engineer? He said, I don't even have a high school education. I said, well, you can get a high school education if you want one. He said, Joe, do you have any idea how old I'll be by the time I get become an engineer? I said, do you have any idea how old you're going to be anyhow? <laughs> yeah. Todd went to went to Tulsa Junior High, Tulsa uh, College, Junior College, and got a high school diploma and got on the dean's honor list. Became a very good student. He wasn't dumb, and eventually got a scholarship to the University of Oklahoma Engineering School. Completed that course. He's now working, or he was working out, and is working out in the Bedesto, California, for an engineering firm. And he told me last fall that he had one more semester and he'd be graduating. That's 15 years ago, and now he's a full-fledged engineer. But he did it because he had the, the faith and courage to do so. My sponsor, Franklin, at this time, George, had gotten some trouble, and uh, I had another sponsor named Franklin. And Franklin told me about the two most important things about prayer. He said, absolutely, the two most important things about prayer. One was to start, and the other was to continue. As I look back at that advice, every time I prayed, I've changed just a little fuzz. Hardly enough that anybody would notice, including me. The next time I prayed, I changed another little bit, hardly noticeable. And as the years go by, there's a major, major change in me. I'm not what I used to be, thank God. I'm just not that, thank God, because of prayer. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Only God can heal a sick mind, see. And every time I pray, I change just a little bit. Slowly over a period of time, there's a major change within me. Okay, we've removed our resentments to the level God intended. They're replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. We've removed our fears to the level God intended. They've been replaced with faith and courage. Now, I've got a storeroom back here in the back of my store, though, that's filled with guilt and remorse. 
associated with the people I've hurt in the past. I'm going to have to start doing something about that because that guilt and remorse controls and rules and dominate my thinking. And the first thing I've got to do with that guilt and remorse is to take an honest look at it, to really see the truth behind it. And it seems as though we human beings hurt each other more, faster, and easier in the sexual area than we do in any other way. And I think there's some valid reasoning behind that. Most of the other animals here on earth, they got the same kind of sex urge we do so that they can reproduce themselves. But the difference in their sex life and ours is they don't have this thing called self-will. Whatever they do is on God's time. When it comes time for them to reproduce themselves, they usually, God usually signifies that by some physical change in the female of the species. The male senses the change, prepares himself, the two join together. It's kind of like bang, bang, thank you, ma'am. And when it's over with, they normally go their separate ways. Not always, but usually. And you see, they don't think about having sex before they have it. They can't decide when they're going to have sex. That's on God's time. In most cases, they can't decide who they're going to have sex with. They can't decide whether they're going to have it with one or more sexual partners. And they can't even decide what position they're going to do it in. So therefore, you see very few sexual problems amongst the other animals here on earth. I've never seen a cow on a psychiatrist's couch yet. Talking about sexual dysfunction. <laughs> we human beings though, are a little bit different. You see, God gives us that sex urge also so that we will reproduce ourselves. But He gives us this thing called self will. And we can make decisions about our sex life. You know, we can have sex every day of the year we want to, anytime. We can decide who we're going to have sex with. We can decide whether we're going to have sex with one or more partners. We can decide how many times we're going to do sex, providing we're physically capable of doing so. We can even decide what position we're going to do sex in. They tell me there's something like 64 different positions a human being can have sex in. I have no idea what they are. I only found three in my lifetime. And two of those damn near killed me. I'm not sure I'm going back to that. So what we're going to do here for just a few minutes this morning is we're, we're not going to talk so much about how we do sex as to how we think about sex. Because how we think about it determines how we're going to do it. 
And that in turn determines whether it's going to hurt other people or not. And that in turn determines whether we're going to have to suffer the retaliation and the shame and the guilt and the remorse associated with those things. I'm always amazed at how, how simple this thing is regarding this sex thing. Just a couple of pages to let you and I look at our own past sex life. See what we've been doing with it. See if we need some changes. And then how to go about making those changes. So we can still enjoy sex, yet at the same time not hurt other people. Let's go to the bottom of page 68. Now about sex. God damn, don't leave, Jim. Hell, just a good part. <laughs> I've known old Jim and Jewel forever, so I can get by with that. Jim's going to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. So easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cried that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. I've heard them all my life. They're the ones that say sex is a dirty thing, that you ought to do it and one time with one person and the only reason to do it is to reproduce yourself and if you enjoy it it's a sinful thing I've heard them as far back as I can remember they are to the extremes on one side then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex who bewail the institution of marriage who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes they think we do not have enough of it whether it isn't the right kind, and they see its significance everywhere. You hear them today. They're the ones that say you ought to be able to have sex any time you want to, with as many people as you want to, in any position as you want to, and you ought to be able to enjoy it every time, and if you don't, there must be something wrong with you. Now, maybe they call that the sexual revolution. Main thing I see wrong with it, it happened 25 years too late for me to participate in it. <laughs> One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hard to be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? And I read that last statement with great relief. Because I knew this book was getting ready to condemn me for what I had been in the past. I knew it was getting ready to tell me what I was going to have to do in the future. And I'd already made up my mind that I wasn't going to pay any attention to it at all. And I'm glad to find out we're not going to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We're not going to get into that question at all. You know, this book is meant to be helpful to anybody anywhere. And if we start trying to tell people how to conduct their sex lives, what they can do and what they can't do, then surely we're going to start alienating people. 
Besides that, what is sexually acceptable in one part of the world may not be acceptable at all in another part of the world. So we're not going to get into that question. What we are going to do is see a way to review our own past sex conduct, to see what really is behind those things that we did, to see if maybe we can shape a new kind of sex life in the future where we can still engage in it and enjoy in it, yet not hurt other people. And primarily, that's all this is about. Joe? I don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct for sure, and I need an overhauling in that area when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to do what the book says, though. We're going to find the facts, and we're going to face the facts, and we engage in the process to accept the facts. And we're going to look for the ideas, the emotions, and attitudes, not necessarily how we do sex, but what we think about sex. Our ideas, our emotions, and our attitudes. In my case, my dad now, his three years and seven months and 13 days later, and a little bit later than that, he went off to California. And that left me and my five, four brothers and one sister at home with my mother. And I couldn't talk to him about it because he's gone. I got to be about 11, 12 years old. And I got to thinking about this a lot. I mean, a lot. Got to have a little brain damage from thinking about it. No one to talk to, so I finally went to my mom. I said, Mom, I've been thinking about sex. I'll never forget. Scared the heck out of you. Oh, my God. She said, that's a dirty, filthy, rotten thing to be thinking about, she said. And you ought to save it for the one you love. Some... And she said the only reason you should have sex in the first place is to have children. Uh, well, I figured that out right quick. She had five children. Then the thought came, well, no wonder my dad was in the nut house. So I went to school, and we had sex edu- education when I went to school, except they call it recess. We learned a lot of things out there. And... Uh, in West Tulsa, Oklahoma, in front of a place called the Jenkins Cafe, there was a bunch of wise, intelligent, experienced men and women who knew all there was to know about sex. Fifteen, sixteen years old. Yeah, fifteen, sixteen years old. They knew it all. And they were more than happy to share it with us little 11, 12-year-old kids. And some of those guys were telling me how often they were having sex with two or three different women a night, they said. My eyes got to be that big around. I like that. The fallacy of all this is this. I'm sober two or three years, and April, I figured out they were lying to me. <laughs> or at least I hope they were lying to me, you know. Because I tried to live my life based upon what I learned on the streets from people that didn't know any more about it than I did. You think I didn't need an inventory when I got here to find out what was right and what was wrong just for me? See, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, the coping skills of an eight- or nine-year-old boy, the sexual knowledge of an 11- or 12-year-old boy that I learned off the streets from people that didn't know any more about it than I did. See, I I was mixed up in all those areas. I needed an inventory. Uh, Remember the first time I got married in the beginning? I did real good for about three years, no problem. And one time I went out on my wife, and, it, and the next day I felt bad. I mean, I really felt bad. I didn't know you were supposed to feel bad, but I did. It's supposed to keep you from doing those kind of things, but it didn't. 
The next time it wasn't quite so bad as the first time. Then the next time it wasn't quite so bad as the time before. And then one day I woke up and it didn't hurt at all. And then I noticed something else. See, if you don't have any principles to live by, ultimately you won't have any reasons to live. And that's where I found myself in the end of my, the end of my drinking. Charlie likes me to tell you the first time I had sex. I was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, inconsiderate, and I was also alone. <laughs> I don't think you want to hear anything from sex about me, from me. So what we can do is do what this book is going to suggest for us to do, and we'll find our own way. That's why he's wearing glasses today, too. <laughs> Every time I say that, I look out there and half a dozen of you guys have jerked your glasses off and put them in your pocket. <laughs> Did you get that? You jerked your glasses off? <laughs> Okay, let's look at the instructions now. Moving right along. (laughs) We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Column five. Whom had we hurt? Column one. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Column four. Where are we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Basically the same set of instructions to look at our sex life as we had for resentments. So we just made up another little sheet, another little inventory sheet, called it a review of my own sex conduct. Five columns. Who did I hurt? What did I do? Which part of self is affected? What feelings did I create in others? And where had I been? Now, I don't think anybody in this room has ever hurt anybody in the sexual area. That we don't know just exactly who that is. That seems to be a form of common knowledge that we have. Uh, There may be some question about what do we do to hurt people in the sexual area. Of course, we've hurt them in many ways. If I'm in a marriage situation, I go out there and have sex out there and my wife finds out about it, then surely I've created a problem for her, if not physically, at least emotionally. If there's children in my home and that sexual escapade out there creates a real rift between my wife and myself, then I've hurt my children too. If the lady I had sex with out there becomes common knowledge, then I've hurt her too. And if she has a husband and children, I've hurt them also. And one sex act can hurt several different people. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by simply demanding that they do with things, us, things with us sexually that they really don't want to. And rather than consider their needs and wants, we selfishly demand our own way. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by demanding more than our fair share. Maybe our partner isn't too keen about having sex when we want to, and we selfishly demand they do those things with us when they really don't want to sometimes. I think sometimes we hurt people in a sexual area by withholding sex. 
Maybe we're not too keen about having sex every time our partner wants to, and sometimes we will selfishly withhold sex when maybe we ought to give in once in a while. A lot of different ways we hurt people in the sexual area. I think we all know what they are. We just simply make a list of those people we've hurt through our own sex conduct. Column two. What did I do to hurt them? Did I commit adultery? Did I force them to do something sexually they didn't want to? If we know who we hurt, we know what we did to hurt them. Column three. Which part of self is affected here? I think this might be one of the most revealing things we can ever do for ourselves. You know, you would think if I hurt anybody in the sexual area, it would be caused by the sex instinct. And I guess once in a while, to get the physical, emotional gratification that comes at the moment of completion of the sex act, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong person because of the sex instinct. But if I carefully look at each situation, I think I'm going to find that the other two instincts are involved just as much as the sex instinct, in many cases even more so. And sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with it. Now, I'm going to express an opinion. I want to be sure that you understand it's my opinion, not Joe's, not AA's, just mine. I am convinced today that God gave us a sex urge so that we could reproduce ourselves. I'm also convinced he made it a very enjoyable thing. So we would do so. I just don't think you and I would do the kind of work involved in the sex act if we didn't get some kind of reward for doing so. Now, if we're doing sex for purposes other than reproduction or enjoyment, we just might be doing sex for purposes other than what God intended. Let me give you, for instance... We boys learned at a very early age that you can use sex to build your self-esteem. After all, the more members of the opposite sex you can attract to yourself, the greater man you really are, we thought. Now, we boys called that John Wayneism. I don't know what you girls called it. Jane Wayne, Jane Wayne Joe said. <laughs> But some of you girls tell me you use sex for the same purpose. Now, if that's what we're doing, that's not to reproduce. That's not to enjoy. That's to fulfill a part of the social instinct. Sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with that. Sometimes we use sex to buy a personal relationship. Maybe we're just lonesome. We want somebody to pay attention to us. We found out a long time ago. And we can give sex and buy back a personal relationship. Now, that's not to reproduce. That's not to enjoy. That's to fulfill a part of the social instinct. Sometimes we use sex to buy material security. Maybe we're in a sexual situation we really would rather not even be in. We've become so overly dependent upon another human being for our material well-being that we give sex to buy back material well-being. 
has nothing to do with reproduction or enjoyment. That's to fulfill the security instinct. Sometimes we use sex to get even with another human being. Maybe our partner's gone out and done something they shouldn't do. We say we'll show them, and we'll go out and do the same identical thing. And the fallacy in it is, is after we've done it, we can't afford to tell them we did it. But there, we didn't use sex to reproduce or to enjoy. We used it to get even with another human being. Sometimes we use sex to force our will on another human being. Maybe our partner isn't doing what we think they ought to do. So we say we'll show them, we'll just cut them off at the pass, and we won't let them have any until they come around our way of thinking. Now, we boys aren't very good at that. We only last about two days. But you girls have honed it to perfection. You know exactly how to do that. I don't blame you. I'd do that too if it worked that good for me. It's absolutely amazing if we really, really look at each one of these sexual things and see which part of self is really involved in it. And the majority of the time, sex doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with it. It's usually to fulfill the social instinct or the security instinct or to force our will upon another human being. Two things happened to me in the third column. First thing that happened to me is a lot of my guilt began to disappear. You know, I thought I was just a dirty, rotten, no-good SOB. But I found out that isn't true, that I use sex for purposes other than what God intended, not because I'm a bad human being, because I'm a sick human being. And I used it to build my self-esteem and etc. The second thing that happened to me is a lot of the desire to go do it in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person began to become less and less and less when I saw the truth behind this thing. You see, I always thought and bragged that I was oversexed. No, I wasn't oversexed. Hell, I was under secure. And I used sex to build my security and my self-esteem and etc. I can't speak for you ladies, but I can speak for we men. And the majority of we men, 90% of our problems in the sexual area is simply this self-esteem thing. Trying to build our self-esteem, trying to build security and etc. Very revealing information. Column four. What feelings did I create in others? Did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? What should I have done instead? You know, not only are we looking at what we did, but we're trying to shape a new sex life in the future where we can still engage in it and enjoy it. What should I have done instead? I need to be looking at that too. Column five. Same character defects. Where had I been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Where had I been self-seeking frightened? Where had I been inconsiderate of other people? And once again, I see the character defects out there in that fifth column. that causes me to do those things that creates problems for others. At the very least, I'm going to have to start doing something about that personality in that fifth column. Because if I stay selfish... Dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. Keep right on doing the same old things over and over. Keep right on hurting people. They're going to retaliate. And I'm going to resent them for doing so. I'm going to be scared to death they're going to catch me. 
and eventually that's going to cause me to drink. So just like with the other parts of the inventory, this is step four. This is the sex part of it. In the fifth column, we see the exact nature of the wrong. The sexual harm was the wrong, but what's the exact nature of it? What's within me that caused it? The exact nature of the wrong for step five. I see the defect of character. I'm going to ask to be willing to turn loose of in six. I see the shortcomings in column five. I'm going to ask God to take away in seven. And quite naturally, all the names in column one will be people I've harmed. And they'll come off of this sheet to be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. We've got everything we need now in the sexual area for steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And one thing that really surprised me is I kept seeing the same names in many cases appearing on all three sheets. I resented Barbara. I feared Barbara. Still a little bit afraid of her today. <laughs> if she ever finds out everything I was doing some 36 or 37 years, she might file for divorce again. And I certainly hurt Barbara in this area. I even had the Internal Revenue Service on all three sheets. I resented them and, and I feared them and I gave them a pretty good screwing before I got through with them. <laughs> I better quit saying that. They may come after me someday. <laughs> okay, now we had prayer for resentments. We had prayer for fears. Now let's look at the prayers we have for the sexual thing, Joe. We had three different prayers in the sexual area. He said, in this way, the way we just described, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? First prayer. We asked God to mold our ideals and to help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we've done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. More prayer. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Now, God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with others, persons is often desirable. But we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. You know, this is an area that I don't think we need a whole lot of advice in. You know, if you go around and start asking people advice on a sexual thing, and you ask a half a dozen people, you're probably going to get a half a dozen different answers. You're still going to have to decide what's right and what's wrong. I think all we need to do is listen to that little voice inside ourselves. You know, I've never been in a sexual area yet that was wrong, that I didn't know it was wrong before I ever got into it. Didn't keep me from getting into it, but I knew it was wrong before I ever got into it. 
I think all we need to do is listen to that little voice inside, and I think each one of us know, you know, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, etc. Besides that, I can't think of a worse place in the world to get advice on sexual matters than Alcoholics Anonymous. A bad place to look for sexual advice. Now, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumbles. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Well, some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we're sorry for what we've done and have an honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we'll be forgiven and have learned our lesson. Now, if we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts of our experience. Now, to sum up about sex, more prayer. We earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets a horny condition. <laughs> now, excuse me. It quiets the imperious urge. When to you would be heartache. <laughs> okay. Now, we're going to do one more little thing, and then we'll take a break. When we get to step eight, it's going to say we have the list. We made it and we took step four. And some of those names have come off the resentment sheet. Some have come off the fear sheet. And some have come off the sexual harm sheet. But there's probably some people we've hurt in other ways other than sexually that haven't shown up on these three sheets yet. So what we're going to suggest is one more little inventory form. And it's called a review of harms other than sexual. Perhaps it's somebody we've stolen from, or perhaps it's somebody we've hurt physically, or perhaps it's somebody we undercut them and took their job away from them, or many ways we hurt people. In column one, we just list who did I hurt. Column two, what did I do to hurt them? Column three, which part of self is affected? Column four, what feelings did I create in others? And column five, which character defect caused me to do that in the first place? Just like I did with the other sheets. And we'll be doing step four.